0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemption'shill.com. We're in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. So we're going to finish the third chapter. Uh, I rolled in this morning, and during setup, me and Blake were setting up, and I said, Hey, paper, rock, scissors. And I knew that he would do this. He didn't ask why, he just did it, which I love. Uh, and, and I won. I said, You get to read today. He's like, Oh, <laughs> if you've looked ahead, it's a laundry list of names that we don't say. Uh, and, and so it's super interesting to say them. Uh, so, what we're going to do, love me well, I'm going to say it as fast as I can, and you're going to pretend like I said it right. And if I didn't, like, none of them are here to know. So, it's like, besides Jesus, and I'll get his name right. Uh, so, it, it, It's fine. Uh, So uh, here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 3, starting in 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well-pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Helii, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Joni, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josech the son of Jodah, the son of Joan, the son of Resa, the son of Zarebabel, the son of Shittateel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasem, we're about halfway, the son of El the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Elekiam, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. You'll recognize that one. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadeb, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Araxphed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, hitting the home stretch, the son of Jared, the son of Meheliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you draw near to us through your word. Uh, You say that your word doesn't ever return void. Uh, So we pray that with this long list of names, it it wouldn't. uh, You would cut to the core of us, that you would show us the beauty of who you are. Lord, give us the eyes to see on Palm Sunday. Uh, We're commemorating the time that Jesus came in uh, like the king to, to die, and that means so much. Us come draw near. We pray that in your name, Amen. Uh, so on nights when I can't sleep, uh, which unfortunately there's quite a few of those, uh, the the clock stares at me with a particular level of malice. In contempt, and I found when that happens, I can't just lay there and like forget about it. It doesn't, it doesn't work. The the more I lay there and try and fall asleep, like the more frustrated I get. So I have to do something to try and trick my mind and maybe reset things somehow uh, to get to go to sleep. So what I normally do is I'll end up grabbing my iPad and I'll watch some sort of of show. I'll generally gravitate towards some sort of episode style show. Uh, that, that isn't very interesting, it doesn't necessarily captivate me or require emotional or mental investment. I can just kind of drone through it, and the hope is that when the episode is done, maybe just maybe my mind will submit and just like go to sleep, and I'll get some some rest. So most recently, the, the show of choice uh, for me has been a Netflix show called Blown, Away, which if you've heard of it, you're probably very surprised that I'm watching that. Uh, but it's about glass blowers and this competition that they have, and they compete in these different challenges. So, all these glass blowers get together, and each week there is a theme, and they document the creation process in light of this theme. And then there is a, a, re, a reveal, and, and then they judge all the things that they have created. So, one person who does the best. They will win. They'll get a little bit of a, a prize, and then the, the person who their work didn't blow them away they they get they get sent home and and, and they're done, uh, all based off the the massive art installation that they create. And so what's been interesting about this show one is the people are straight weirdos, like really really weird. And if you find that judgmental, watch it, and then you're like, yeah, you're kind of right. There, some of them are interesting, but uh, even more than that, what what, it, what is interesting is the massive. Creations that they make in five hours out of glass and i 'm not talking like a little goblet uh, and i 'm not talking like a little like blue dolphin that you would put for some reason on your desk or something like that i 'm talking four five six foot tall creations, uh, some of them are, are suspended from the ceiling, some of them go through different things they're, they're just they 're insane, some are abstract, some are realistic. But the good ones, they, they normally have something in, in common. The, the really well-created ones, they will all do something to you when you look at them, and they're going to evoke this kind of sense or this feeling from you. So, so you may look at one really good one, and, and like it's just glass, and all of a sudden you're like, sad, right? And then you look at another and you feel excited. And then one makes you like literally feel angry. You're like, I want to break it. You're like anxious. And then one makes you smile and you're just like, man, life's good. Others just kind of make you feel the sense of, of, of movement. If you're following me, when you stand back and look at the entire work, the good ones cause a specific reaction to be brought out. Not by captivating on just one little piece or one color. You take in the whole thing and this, this specific reaction is brought out and it's kind of undeniable and you walk away with it. Here's the point. This text in the laundry list of names and the genealogy that you behold here in the text, my contention is when you take in that whole thing, much like that art, you're meant to walk away uh, with this certain type of of feeling and emotion and awe. So we're not meant to to balk at the laundry list of names. Uh, You're not meant to do what you do in Leviticus in your Bible reading plan. You're like, boop, and just skip to the next thing. Like, I know you do it. I've done it too. You're, You're not meant to... To, to zone out in the family tree. What this is meant to be is the genealogy is meant to be a springboard that Luke uses to move into the ministry of Jesus on earth. If you'll see later in chapter 4, your heading most likely is going to be the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. This genealogy is the the, the gun blast at the beginning of the race that that starts the, the epic march of our king towards the redemption of our people. So the names aren't meant to be just skipped over. They're meant to be taken in and reframe your mind around the entirety of the big picture of what God is doing so that you can be stirred appropriately to see the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, well, are you with me? So, to take it in, you're like, oh, and then you see what he does. So, before we dig into the parts, here's the question you know, I like doing this uh, that, that I would maybe call, ask you to, to think of before we move into the rest. And the question is simple What is your primary identity that you're living out of right now? What's the primary thing? And maybe I'll try and set the stage because when you talk about identity right now, like stuff gets weird. And I'm not talking about gender or sex or sexuality the, the way it's talked about in the public square a lot. I'm asking internally, what is the identity that you're living out of now? Another way to say it is who are you or who do you see yourself as? What is the primary identity that's kind of driving your life that you operate out of? And if that feels maybe a little bit difficult, here's another way that hopefully is helpful. What's the identity that tries to take over and take the wheel and shove itself into your life quite often? Uh, some people tie their vocation to their identity. That's been a thing for as long as we can remember. You'll meet someone, what do you do? And they begin to tie who they are to what they do. Or you ask somebody what are their hobbies or what are their interests, to begin to kind of tie their identity to those things. But what you do and what you're interested in are are, are shaky identity things at best, uh, because what we do is never meant to to define who we are. And then what we do, job wise or interest wise, like I, I'm 41, and, and Garrett and Blake can tell you how many times my hobbies have changed. Like your identity shouldn't be placed into a singular rhythm, and and then the identities that people live in, they're they're normally based on on more of of how they feel about themselves. As, uh, as humans, how they feel about their, their life. So I've seen people whose identity, identity has been tied to their education level. They wear in self-defacing comments and in their mind the identity of the, the dumb guy. Or the, the, the not-so-smart, or the not-book person. And, and this idea of an education level just kind of follows them around like a like a shadow. It's walked into their identity. And I, I've seen the person who lives out of the identity of, of the hurt person. And they maybe had something bad happen at one point in their life, and then a, a coping mechanism kind of went sideways on them, and they stay in this position of hurt so they'll never be surprised again. And there's just kind of this like bitter shadow that, that follows them. And uh, I, I've seen the unlovable person in, in the, the wealthy person and the, the disappointment person. Have you ever seen that get wedged in? Or maybe it's been in, in your life. It's just what I do. I break and I destroy and I don't ever come through. I've seen the the victim person and the the pretty person and the party person. See, there's many, many, many things that our identities kind of get placed into. The idea is often that the narrative or the emotion or the feeling that gets consciously or unconsciously placed in your life is the identity that becomes the driving force. And it actually, like gravity, it pulls things in certain ways in your life and what you do. So I wonder if you can pinpoint an identity that you, that you live out of currently or an imposter identity that always tries to take things from you. It, it, it shoves itself into your path all the time, no matter if you want to or not. Because in this text, Luke is going to declare about followers of Jesus that your identity needs to be placed in a foundation uh, that, that, that is strong. We need to be careful, uh, if not militant, to make sure our identity doesn't get placed into things that aren't true or things that are temporary, or things that maybe just our emotions lead us to. Your identity can't be placed in any of those, so you have to fight to make sure it doesn't rest there. Are you still with me after those names? A couple yeses, okay. Uh, with that, to be able to m- maybe make sense of this text, we'll, we'll recognize the parts, because there's more than just the list of names that happen inside of this text. It, it leads off, so the text before this week was John the Baptist, and he was baptizing, so he was sharing the good news of God, and he was calling people to repent. Good news led to, not capricious, angry people, good news led to a heart that repented and the heart that was led back to God. And people actually keep with bearing fruit by keeping with repentance. So John is leading us to see, hey, repentance isn't what you and I do one time when we say, I'm sorry, God love me. It's the it's the, the posture of our life continually. And that's actually where the good fruit out of our life comes is you're you're making a straight path of the Lord to your heart. He's molding and he's He's shaping you, and good things happen when you're continually presenting your heart towards God. So John is coming out of the wilderness. He's got an interesting outfit. He's doing that, and then it pivots from John the baptizer baptizing other people to Jesus' baptism. That was at the beginning of this part of the text. And the whole trinity is there, and then these words are spoken out from the Father about his Son— Then the genealogy is listed from Jesus all the way to Adam, and then it speaks about the Son of God again, right? So baptism of Jesus, the Son of God, list of names, the Son of God. The the, the way that this text is likely meant to be taken in is is a framing up of the tale of, of two sons, The tale of two sons and where you and I find ourselves in relation to those two sons. So the subtext of the verses here will ask you and I the question, of which son do you belong? Of which son do you identify? Which camp are are, are you in? And, And I'll try not to do any type of slow reveal and just kind of throw it out there plainly. The son that you identify with will pour into the identity that you live out of. Whether you know it or not, or whether you want it to be the case or not, the sun that you identify with will pour into the identity that you live out of. Here's the rub in our modern context, though. The idea that someone else, besides me, gets to to form my personal identity, in a hyper-individualistic culture, that's looked at as insane, oppressive, or abusive. Are you following? You're going to tell me who I am? Yes. See, we we live in in the motto of the day that we're, we're islands unto ourselves. I'm not tethered to anyone or anything or any rules or any expectations. It's me and only me. If you have that mindset of the culture slip into you where you define everything about yourself, you will miss the gospel. You cannot latch on to the gospel this way. To be a Christian is to throw the full weight of your hope into someone else forming your identity. They literally are the foundation that you live off of. A hyper-individualistic society will crush your ability to worship and praise our good Savior because you'll never be able to say, hey, let your identity take over for me. When you see the big picture, many were expecting God to send a Savior who would fix what they didn't like about life and the world and the powers of the day. And the book of Luke is showing what many expected God to do is not actually what he's going to do through Jesus the Messiah. God wants transformed hearts and transferred identities, not just political heroes to come fix powers of the day. He's sending Jesus to fix you and me from the inside out. Again, that makes sense why John the Baptist is coming out of the woods going, make your heart ready, prepare the way for the Lord. I'm not trying to fix a political power or an election or crush Rome. I'm trying to fix your heart. Again, the subtext under that is us asking, do I want that or do I think I need that? Let's look closer at the individual parts of the text. It it almost feels awkward how fast Luke blows past Jesus' baptism. Like he gets a couple words. right? He doesn't list the location or the crowd or the day of the week or the type of weather. Like There's just nothing. It's John baptizes a ton of people. Oh, and then Jesus got baptized. And then Luke focuses all of his attention on what happened when Jesus got baptized and after that. So in the process of Jesus getting baptized right after that, we see Jesus was there. So the Son of God was being baptized. And when it's finished, Jesus is praying. And from above, the the Holy Spirit comes down. The clouds are are, are ripped apart. What does it look like? I don't know. Would have been cool to see. The, the, The clouds are ripped apart, and the Holy Spirit comes down on bodily form onto Jesus. So God the Son is being baptized. God the Holy Spirit comes down and is on him. And then a voice from above, the voice of God the Father, speaks out. You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. Notice again, the full Trinity. Luke is is, is making sure that you cannot miss this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all there in one place to be seen and to be heard and to be be a, a palpable manifestation of the entire Trinity. But notice what God the Father says. Jesus, you are my beloved Son. What do a lot of people try and do with Jesus? You're not just a person. You're not just a teacher. You're not just a moral leader. You're not just a better priest that I'm sending down. You are the very son of God. And there's a lot of language that, that gets thrown around and it maybe gets confusing where people talk about the sons and daughters of God. And it's not, it's not wrong. It should be talked about that way. Uh, but normally when people are talking about the sons and daughters of God as a people, they're talking about the adoption side of things, not the origin side of things right? It's a little bit different. Most of the time it's talking about how someone's been brought into the family of God, but that's not the way that it's talking about the, the son of God here in the baptism. As God the Father says, Jesus, you are my son, my beloved son. He's referencing, you came from me. Jesus had no earthly father because he descended from God the Father. God was his father. Jesus was from God. He was his actual son. And then hear the statement, the huge statement, thinking of God the Father and our own hearts, and what we want from our Father, and what we would want from God the Father, the statement, with you I am well pleased. It's a pretty big statement because our hearts are kind of intertwined with the reality of what we hear here. So I believe the reason that Luke doesn't focus on the details of the baptism isn't a matter of oversight, it's a matter of intentionality. He doesn't want you to get distracted by the, by the other details. Here he wants you to pick up clearly what is being said so that you don't have it pulled away from you. And what is being said is this, you are mine, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. Right? Three parts, ownership, love, pleasure. You are mine, and I love you, and I'm well pleased with you. Let's loop back to identity. Right now, how do you think God feels about you? When we were at the marriage retreat, the the guy who led it, he asked that question, and I think it maybe jogged some things we hadn't asked in a while. How do you think God feels about you if the heavens were to part just like the baptism, and God's like, hey, and, and he's going to tell you how he feels about you. What do you think he's going to say in the categories of claiming you, loving you, and, and how pleased he is with you right now? Where do you think the chips are going to fall? Like, what's your grade? you going to get you're like 66%? you going to nail two out of three? Like, where, where do you think you are on this right now? Would God claim you? How pleased would he be with you? And this is the thing that tends to get difficult for our hearts if we think about it. So many times I, I think we try not to think about it. It's, it's where we can tend to struggle because we'll, we'll often either not think or believe that God feels this way about us or we'll cognitively, like mentally, we'll, we'll say, yes, God loves me. But then experientially, we don't feel as if he's actually loving you in the moment, right? You'll know it is true, but it's like you don't experience this type of thing from God. Historically, this has been my battle, and I think probably several of yours as well. I, I wrestle with it at, at different seasons where I feel like God loves me, but He's not like in love with me. He doesn't like love loving me. Or, or I feel like He loves me or likes me like, like a father uh, does his son, but he, does, he doesn't like actually like me. Like, I, I love Him. You know, I have to. I don't really like Him. Like, if I could if I get Him to go away, I would. Then as far as the claiming thing, it's not hard for me to believe that God would claim me. Whose is this? It's mine. But it's hard to believe like, it's mine, it's mine. That's really hard for me at times. Right? There's a difference between that's my boy. (laughs) That's my boy. Like that's a tension in my, my heart. I'm not the only one. Right? It's a tension in many of your hearts as well. So when Jesus has the skies split and loud and proud, God says, You're mine, I love you, and with you I'm well pleased. We often either ignore the significance of the statement or think deeply inside, man. I wish. I wish I had that. Why? why does that get churned? Why do we wrestle with the cognitive moving into the heart and the experiential to feel like God sees those who are his? And, then, and we got to like think about this because it's interesting that it's that hard. Why do we see the ones that he saved on purpose? It was his plan and his choice. Why do we struggle to think That he looks at us in the light that he said that he would. And and here it is, if we could be honest, it's because down deep inside, you and I know we don't deserve that. We're really good at like faking it, like, I'm great, so much better, not as bad as that guy. We struggle with feeling God loves us because we know there's a lot of unlovable things that we do. You and I feel the weight of our sin and it whispers to our heart. What does it say? God couldn't love you. Why? Because he sees who you really are. God couldn't feel this way about you. He knows what you've done. He knows your mind. He knows how you think about them. He knows about the things that you do. He knows about things that you avoid. It just whispers to our heart, how could he feel that way about you? At that point, we go back to the genealogy. Consider the the gospel of Matthew, right? Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew opens up with a genealogy as well, but the genealogy aims to to focus on the connection of Jesus to the patriarchs. So it wants to connect the dots so you can see the family line of of Jesus uh, to Abraham and Jesus to the mighty King David, now the reason for this is, is Matthew is, is written more to the, the, the Jewish mind or, or the thoughts that, that, a, that a Jewish man would have had at that time. So it's angled in to, to, to minister to the, to, to the uh, men and women of God from Israel. It's specifically aiming at them. So the genealogy was specifically to show them that Jesus came from the right family tree to be the things that, that they're claiming he's going to be. Right and, and therefore this this genealogy is highlighting his pedigree, so in some ways to the to the Israelite, to the Jewish man, that the genealogies that they find in Matthew are a bit of a flex. Look at where he comes from. but the genealogy in Luke is written to the Gentiles. They don't care about the family line or the pedigree, right That's not a question that they're asking, and so the genealogy in this one connects Jesus all the way. To Adam. Yeah, it mentions Abraham and it mentions David, but just as one of of many names, the, the big connection, the dots they're connecting is Jesus all the way to Adam. Which in this case doesn't represent a flex of a pedigree or a family tree. This actually is focusing on an unbroken chain of sinful people. Matthew's focused on a proud royal line. Luke's focus is on a laundry list of just sinful, wayward, broken people. Some worse than others. Like you got some, you got some cool stories in there, but all of them failed. All of them sinned grievously. And regularly against God. The, the entire feel is, is much, much different. This, like, look at that genealogy to like look at those guys. It's different. Then notice, remember when I talked to the, the tale of two sons, the genealogy when it mentions Adam, it also calls him the son of God, just like Jesus, except for not. Adam, like Jesus, had no earthly biological father. Right? Created from the dust. Therefore, Adam was from God. He was God's son in the same way that Jesus was, but Adam sinned against God instead of trusting him. Same origin. Much different result. Mike McKinley said, Adam, the son of God, and the image of God was created to represent God to the world, man, man our hearts would do good to remember that we were created to represent the image of God, if that's like oh i don 't know if I want to do that. The image of God is something you get to represent. You were not hosed there. He was created to to represent the image of God to the world, but sadly he was not content with that role, and he rebelled against God, and the image of God was. if not lost, significantly defaced. If we're connecting the pieces, Jesus heard the statement, with you I am well pleased, but we see with Adam is not the case, a son of God that he is not well pleased in. Adam, though God's son, though the image of God himself, didn't trust God, follow God, or obey God. Adam in the garden sinned against God and thought that he could do better outside of the will of God. I would be a better captain of my own soul. I would be a better island unto myself. Don't you define me. Don't tell me what to do. I would do better on my own. He did that and sinned against God. Then the genealogy that proceeds. It's like Groundhog Day with a side of depression. Like it's the same thing over and over and over again. This laundry list of people who follow the way of Adam, the son who who, there wasn't good pleasure inside of. right? Even Abraham, remember they're trying to connect Abraham and David, the patriarchs. Even Abraham in this list, he loaned out his wife twice because he struggled to believe that God would take care of him. Right? You may not loan out your wife, but do you have the same struggles? Like, I just don't know if you're going to do the best thing for me, so I'm going to take this into my own control. Right? So, so what would Abraham do? He would do kind of sketchy things to try and secure his own life instead of trusting the Father. Then for that matter, the great King David lied, plotted, had a man murdered to try and conceal that he'd taken his wife. Even the high marks or the, the great men in the line of Israel sinned and rejected God. There's this dark, sad reality that Luke is highlighting that we may want to like look away from, but he wants us to look at it. Everyone falls. Everyone fails. Everyone sins. Except for Jesus. Jesus becomes the break in the cycle of the line of Adam. where Adam created a line of sinners, Jesus stepped down and was righteous and fully obedient. All of a sudden, it's meant to kind of jump off the page at us, what Luke is doing. He's highlighting Jesus is the only one whom God was well-pleased because he's the only one who actually trusted God. He's the only one that actually followed He's the only one without sin. Then if we think back to the baptism of Jesus and reanalyze it a little bit more, to be baptized is to make a statement of loyalty, allegiance, and identity. Your baptism is a statement of who you are. Right? There's a lot of people who change different things. They're more focused on how do they do it or how do they do it and what does it mean? It's a statement of your identity. There's more to that, but it's a, it's a massive statement of where you're at. So when Jesus is, is baptized, he's identifying himself with the people who needed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let, let that sink in of what that means. Jesus had no sin to repent of, he's team righteous with one member. He had no no need for cleansing. His act of being baptized was in obedience to the Father in accordance with Scripture, but more specifically, God the Son was stooping down to identify with those who are not like him. Follow the line. The sinless Son of God was willing to identify with sinful sons of God been a laundry list of, of sinful sons and daughters and generation after generation after generation. But in Jesus, we finally have the holy and obedient Son of God. And the mind blowers that the holy, obedient Son of God did not reject or ignore the sinful wayward ones like me. Do you feel the audacity of that? He identifies with them, and he moves towards them. The real surprise of the gospel, McKinley says, is that the pleasing son did not come into history just to kind of enjoy the good pleasure of his heavenly father alone. Instead, shockingly, we see at the baptism the sinless Jesus is identifying with a sinful humanity He went under the water as a way of saying, count me in as one of them. I'm I'm with them. And ultimately, he became one of us. We got to put our theological hats on so that he could take our place on our punishment. See, the sacrificial kindness of God becomes even more kind of scandalous and amazing when you consider Jesus traded the Father's good pleasure with him for the full cup of his wrath. You want to make that trade? I've earned your good pleasure. I'll, I'll take your wrath. Jesus willingly identified with a sinful humanity that is in our only hope because now a sinful humanity can identify with his righteousness. He identifies with you so that you can identify With him. How do you think this works without that? See, we may accidentally only consider our identification. Remember, hyper individualistic culture. We may only consider our identification with Jesus in our life. Well, I'm willing to call myself a Christian, I'm willing to believe in Jesus. I'm willing to ask for salvation so so that we maybe might consider receiving the righteousness of Jesus as something that we kind of opted into because we decided, like, I will connect with you. But the flip side of salvation, like, it has to be thought of. It's not just that we identify with Jesus that is the mind blower. Who wouldn't be like, yes, I'll take the righteous resume. Right? No, you can keep it, right? That, that's, that's not crazy that, that we would do that. The mind blower is that he would be willing to identify with us. Who makes that trade? Yeah, I'll take your shame. I'll be known for your sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of Christ. If Jesus wouldn't have gotten to the water to be identified with you, he could not be the one who stood in your place and you could not take his identity and, and him take yours, Are you following me? This is wild to think about. We so often just focus on what we claim. What about what he claimed? Why would you do that? He had the perfect resume, no mar on his record, no bill to pay, uh, no, no need for cleansing. And yet, though perfection and holiness was his, he gladly took upon identifying with us and taking our identity. If you're following The love of Jesus for you and I, for sinners, is unfathomable. How deep the Father's love that he would send his Son. How deep the Son's love that he would obey and stand in our place. There, there's a corner of our heart. If we, if we just talk honestly in moments where you see yourself and you're like, I don't like that. If even you can see yourself and not love it, that he would identify with all of our sin? Almost too much. Even more, Jesus getting into the water to be baptized then is kicking off the hero walking into the fire to save you and me. Right? It's the kind of inauguration into his ministry. Right? He identifies with you before he goes out to seek, save you, and, and perform his, his duty. It's him saying, I've come not for a victory tour. It was before Instagram, but I didn't just come for selfies. I've come to identify with the people that I came to save. I've come to step into the mess, into their place. I've come to carry out the will of the Father in all of this. Consider me one of them. Here we go. Again, in light of Palm Sunday, where was here we go? What led to the march back to Jerusalem to die? But it wasn't just all smiles. Like, oh, I'll take their resume. It's I'll take their resume and I'll die. Yes, let me. I'll throw my lot in with them. I'll be identified with them. I'll pay for them. And I'll give them everything that's mine. I wouldn't have wrote that story. If you struggle to see Jesus' love for you, See this, he knew fully who you are and you still got in the water that day. Yeah. He wasn't tricked, he wasn't forced, he wasn't ignorant and you still got in the water. And then even more so, he didn't pull out before the cross, he knew who you were and he still got on the cross. I'll get in the water and I'll get on the cross. So that's the enemy's trick, oh, if he only knew. He would not have, he knew, and he did it. The whole trinity is there because it's kind of the visible kickoff to the outworking of salvation. God speaks out over the sun, you are mine, I love you, and I'm pleased. God knows he's going to bring back the spoils of war against the enemy, which is the souls of the sons and daughters, sinful people. If we try and connect all the dots, Luke is showing us the gospel. The good news that God looks at his sinful children. The ones that identify with Jesus, trust Jesus and follow Jesus. And he sees his good son. The second Adam standing in their place. And because of that, the the, with you I am well pleased that you and I did not earn through our transferred identity into the person of Christ, gets credited to our lives. We go from the ones who bore the image of God wrongly, from those who couldn't and wouldn't be faithful, from those who are fellowship breakers, to the one, from the ones who are not pleasing to God, and that whole identity gets washed away like I said. And this new identity gets gifted over to you and I by grace. We struggle... to feel that God looks at us in this type of way because you and I still feel the reality of our sin. We're not perfect. We still have, we still got some stuff that we're working through. We see our mistakes, but we forget that it was God's good will to do this. God isn't forced to keep kids that he doesn't really want. How much does the enemy love to tell you that? He doesn't want you. Would he be a liar if he, if he didn't keep you? So he's just going to leave it. Right? That, that's, how he, that's how he whispers into my ear. He knew what he was getting. He's not disappointed. God sent Jesus to save us and then so that he could delight in us in a fully restored relationship with no shame. I would invite you to see that with fresh eyes. What feels impossible to our flesh, if you are a follower of Jesus, is right now God feels about you the way that he felt about Jesus. He looks at you, let your heart hear this, and goes, That one's mine. Oh my God, they're mine. That one is mine. Nobody will take them from me. How mine? You will not snatch them from my hand. They're mine. I love them so much that I sent my son to pay in blood for them. I'm well pleased in them because I saw fit to have Jesus stand in their place. And even though there's still some places and some slip-ups every once in a while, I see the son, Jesus, washed away the wrath and the anger and contempt. And what's left is the joy of a good father. It's good news. See, this is the identity that a believer is meant to walk in. And it's what God gave them on purpose. This is what we need to tell ourselves on repeat, that this is what it is finished means. It means I don't have to keep trying to earn the love and acceptance that God gave me, that Jesus paid for. I don't have to pay off the bill, or it's not like he paid this much, I gotta like leave a good tip to make sure everything's okay. You and I don't have to make sure that we're trying to show God that we weren't a bad purchase. God knows what he was getting. So shame can't crush you and I if we believe what is true. Again, this doesn't mean that grace is cheap. For the person who goes, I can do whatever I want. God loves me. You're not saved, right? If that's the course of someone's life forever, they're not actually a son or daughter. But you and I, in the tender parts of our heart, when we just struggle to feel like God loves us that much, this whispers into our ear, your perfection isn't required because perfection came. It was called Jesus. Take that. Much better. The one who got into the water to throw his hat into the ring to identify with you so that by grace you could identify with him. The perfect life, the perfect son, the perfect lamb has come. Again, it seems like too much. And all he, has been done, all he has done has been transferred to your account. You are free. This is what we're meant to live out of. Consequently, this is what the enemy will try with every bit that he has to steal from you. What's the best gift that you could have? You have an identity that you didn't earn and all the blessings of Jesus is yours. Yeah, steal that from them. Whisper that it's not true. Tell them that he doesn't love them. Your job and mine then is not to fight to earn things we could never earn. It's to fight to remember what he did. That's different. In April, we're going to have a, a baptism service at our new place. Here's my prayer, that some of you will joyfully get in the water that day. And maybe you haven't seen it this way, but you get to rejoice that not only would he identify with you, but you want to identify with him. The same way that Jesus identified with broken people, it should be our deep joy. I'm talking to Judah a lot about this right now. You don't have to be perfect or wait for the right time. If he would identify with you, why wouldn't you want to identify with him? Let's go. Right, The same Jesus who stands in your place, what a beautiful thing that we get to say. He would identify with me, so I'm, I'm going to get in the water. I'm not perfect. Who knows about timing? But I'm his because, because he would take on all of my shame. My press for you, if you haven't been baptized or you're putting it off, why would you do that? right? If I could, if I could lovingly press, why would you not identify with a Savior who would identify with you? You're not earning it back. But again, if we look at Matthew 28, what did Jesus say? I'll be with you. Be baptized. Be discipled. And I'll never leave you. It's a part of the process. We, we, we turn obedience and baptism and obedience into, obedience into discipleship. Sometimes it's just like, I'll show up some. It's not what he asked for. So my hope is that we would proclaim the beauty of what Jesus has done and, and begin to like lose our minds in a better holistic view of what baptism is. Look at my brother identifying with Jesus. Look at my son. Look at my sister. Look what the Lord has done. Man, this is amazing. So the hope is that we would have the water there and begin to see the work of King Jesus. And it all started with him getting in the water, saying, I'll identify with him so we can identify with him now. It's really good news. We'll close down for it today, and we'll take communion today. It's a great thing to come to the table each week, but what a more fitting thing to do to understand that everything that you got through Jesus was earned by him and him alone. So when you come to the table and take the bread and, and, and dip it into the cup... You're once again remembering my identity comes from you and you alone. I don't form it. I don't shape it. I don't earn it. You want it all. By your broken body and by your shed blood, you're, you're taking and remembering again. God, you're good. Man, thank you. Thank you I don't have to stand on my resume. Man, I haven't really even been focusing on the identity you've gave me over the last little bit. Thank you for what you have done. My hope is that your heart would be filled and encouraged as you come and take. Clayton, you can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Each time we come and take, we're reminding ourselves, and even, even, even more importantly, or just as importantly, we're reminding each other of the identity that we've been gifted together in Jesus. You didn't earn that alone you didn't earn anything. We have been given this and we celebrate. There's no other good news that you can get, no better news than what Jesus has given you, the thing that you didn't earn. Would you stand and pray with me today?